Great to see you, Purpose Church. Just a couple of housekeeping items uh, before we get into our uh, study, and they're the same ones I did a couple of weeks ago, so you, you may have heard me uh, talk about these before. Number one, uh, congregational meeting this afternoon here in the worship center at 3.30 p.m., child care provided in the nursery, ages zero to five. And this meeting is to approve the updates of our 2003 Constitution. Uh, we haven't done it for a long time, about 20 years, and we hope this one will last for another uh, 20 years. Over the past six months, our Constitution Committee have invested about 200 hours on this, and we have had between five and six hours of congregational meetings, so I really hope you can help us uh, to finish the job for the next 20 years. And then the second thing I want to mention is that our in-person attendance is now up 44% over a year ago, which is just remarkable when you consider the heartbreaking closing of tens of thousands of churches over the last uh, four years. Um, it's just uh, really unbelievable what God has, has done here. And like I said, our in-person attendance is up 44% over a year ago, so we really need more volunteers in our guest services to serve more and more people as we continue to grow. Uh, the pandemic, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, hit three things. It hit in-person attendance, it hit giving and finances, but most of all, it hit volunteers. That's what churches are struggling with across America more than anything. And so we need you to be part of our guest services team uh, to reach these people, especially as we're a few weeks out from Easter. Uh, go to purposechurch.com serve, and there you'll be able to sign up for one of our services. You can help as uh, regularly or as occasionally as you want to, but deepening our bench uh, will just help us so, so much in that area. Uh, we also have a design to serve next Sunday at 10 o'clock at H102, where we take spiritual gifts test and we share with you the opportunities. There are here at Purpose Church, not just guest services, but all across uh, the campus and throughout the week, uh, different ways to figure out how God best designed you to serve other people and to serve Him. Now today we're continuing our 2023 20, uh, series in which we cover the 66 books of the Bible in 52 weeks. Now because we're covering 66 books in 52 weeks, that means that some weeks, like today, we'll need to cover two books. And the title of our series is Jesus on Every Page. Uh, so we're looking at for Jesus at every book of the Bible. Now the title of the section that we're currently in, which is the Old Testament historical books, is No Perfect People Allowed. And so far in uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, uh, now 1st, 2nd Kings, we have, we have seen a lot of imperfect people, and yet God still uses imperfect people like the one we've been reading about, and like you, and like me. Now last Sunday, Pastor Claire Kalinko and Pastor Jason Boston just did a phenomenal job on First uh, and Second Samuel. These two just did a remarkable job. And we have so many outstanding young leaders here at Purpose Church. Here are the two of them in their element. Uh, now, speaking of uh, outstanding young leaders, Pastor Eric Holmstrom last weekend was in Massachusetts 
uh, speaking to 250 inner city urban students and 55 of them made decisions for, for Christ. And so we praise God for how he's using Pastor Eric from coast to coast. Now the title for today's study is First and Second Kings, Jesus our King who brings revival. Uh, so let's look at the background for First and Second Kings. It takes two hours, six minutes to read First Kings and two hours, six minutes to read Second Kings. They're exactly uh, the same length. Uh, the content is starting with the reign of Solomon, the story of the decline and eventual dissolution of the monarchy uh, in Israel and the expulsion of God's people from the land. They are taken into exile. It starts with uh, the reign of Solomon, but then it ends with uh, being taken into exile, uh, the northern kingdom to uh, Syria and the southern kingdom, Judah, to Babylon. The historical coverage is from the death of David in 970 B.C. to the 6th century exile of Judah in 586 B.C. A way to look at it is with these uh, four dates. David died in 970 B.C., Solomon died in 931 B.C., and Israel uh, splits between the north and the south. The northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and exiled by Assyria in 722 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah was destroyed and exiled by Babylon in 586 B.C. And then the emphasis of these two books is the evaluation of the monarchy on the basis of covenant loyalty. That is, how God judged the leaders of Israel and, and how he judged the people of Israel was not how by how prosperous they were or how uh, much they expanded their territory or shrunk their territory. It was by how loyal they were to the covenant that they had made with God. The fateful national consequences of disloyalty to God resulting finally in expulsion from the land. The schism and civil wars between North and South the rise of superpowers like Assyria and Babylon uh, later after these books will come Persia. Uh, the rise of superpowers that under the direction of God subjugated Israel and Judah. The role of prophets who speak for God in Israel's uh, national life. Now, another theme in First and Second Kings and next week in First and Second Chronicles is that in the northern kingdom of Israel, the kings were usually all bad. But in the southern kingdom of Judah, some were all bad, but many of them started well, but finished poorly. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was so fascinated by this subject that I, I wrote a book on it a few years ago called uh, Fourth Quarter Fumbles, in which you can see so many of these kings. Uh, I, I study and lead a study of 11 kings uh, from First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, who started well but did not finish well, and how can we avoid their mistakes and not just start well in the Christian life and in our walk with God, but fi finish well uh, also. Now, there are several pictures of Jesus uh, foreshadowing what we call prototypes, archetypes of Jesus in First and Second Kings. There's Solomon, there's Elijah, there's Elisha, but the one I want us to look at today that is in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is Hezekiah. He foreshadows Jesus when he cleanses the temple and leads revival in the temple and the cleansing of the temple 
and the recommitment to following after God, the revival, when uh, uh, Hezekiah does that, um, he foreshadows uh, Jesus, uh, foreshadows uh, in 700 years before Christ, 700 BC, he's foreshadowing uh, the cleansing of the temple that brought revival when Jesus came uh, 700 years later that we see in the New Testament. Now, this is perfect timing. I, I can't believe it. We, we've known for months now that we were going to study this subject uh, this particular Sunday. And this is just like perfect timing because of all the talk about revival that's in America today. We've been talking about a lot in the last uh, few weeks. Now, in a sense, every Sunday is a revival because it's a day where we emphasize prayer and worship and repentance and confession and fellowship and serving and giving and the study of God's Word. So, so in, in a sense, every Sunday is a revival. After a week, uh, we go through a week where we can sometimes forget about eternal things because we're so busy with just living and surviving day by day. On Sunday, we get revived at church to think more about eternity and how should we should live in the light of eternity. But every once in a while, uh, beyond just the regular worship that revives us to go out and, and live another week, every once in a while in history, God sends a special time that revives a whole nation like it did with the Great Awakening, uh, which uh, many historians believe led to the American Revolution, the Great Awakening within our country and other revivals down through uh, American history. Every once in a while, God sends a special time that revives a whole nation or a community of people in a certain place. And I believe that that's what we're seeing uh, in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University. And it's now spreading to other college campuses uh, as well. Uh, here's a picture from what's going on in Kentucky at Asbury University uh, the last uh, couple of weeks, last two or three weeks. Uh, Am Graham Lotz, who's uh, Billy Graham's daughter, uh, she's been asked, what do you think of the Asbury revival? And she writes, I would like to attempt an answer to this question. Using the words of my husband's nephew, Dr. John Paul Lotz, who was sent by Regent University to observe firsthand what seems to be revival. John Paul texted me with this description. There was no leader, no rival, no envy, no pride, all humility, meekness, gentle hearts, stumbling sinners, tender students, serving thousands of curious visitors in their love for mercy without knowing they are doing so. It is legit. Gen Z write-offs are graciously allowing us to peek in on this surprising work of God as they serve us like priests, unconsciously dragging us into the presence of the Lord through young, redeemed, romantic hearts for God. Christ is being honored. God is being glorified, and the Spirit is at liberty. The real awkward, cringeworthy gawkers are the over-40s like myself who can't put down their phones. The Zs, the Gen Zs, left theirs at home. Could what John Paul observed be the beginning of the latter reign? And Graham Lotz asks. An outpouring of God's Spirit in one last great awakening before Jesus returns. Lord God, let it be so. 
for the glory of your great name, for the salvation of our nation, for the revival of your people. A movie just came out this weekend called Jesus Revolution. And this is about the Jesus movement here in Southern California during the 1970s, which was a major uh, revival. So I want us to look at Hezekiah uh, because he's a picture of Jesus. He shows us the results of a revival and he's also an example of a strong start in your walk with God and a weak fi finish. So that's three reasons why I want us to talk about Hezekiah. He's this picture of Christ in the cleansing of the temple. He shows us the results of a revival. We're going to look at the different elements of that revival. And he's also an example of a strong start and a weak finish. And we can learn uh, from uh, what we see in his life. Now, Hezekiah is a very prominent person in the Bible. There are 11 chapters about him, four in uh, 2 Kings, four chapters in 2 Chronicles, and three chapters in the book of Isaiah for a total of 302 verses. Now, what he doesn't have is a book named after him. And we often think there's a book of Hezekiah. There's a Haggai, there's a Zechariah, but there's not a Hezekiah, the oldest practical joke among Christians is uh, when a pastor's in church to say in church, or if you're in a Bible study, uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hezekiah and see how many people do it. This is what passes for a practical joke <laughs> among Christians. Uh, it's the oldest practical joke. Uh, Barnabas did this one day while preaching at the church in Antioch in 45 A.D., that, that's, that's a joke. We don't know if that happened or not, but, but it could have happened. Um, it, it could have been hilarious. Uh, as a matter of fact, way before Christians, uh, maybe a rabbi could have done that in 300 uh, B.C. at his synagogue. Say, turn to the book of Hezekiah. There is no book of Hezekiah, but there is a very prominent person in Scripture by the name of Hezekiah. Now, he had a very uh, strong start. Number one, he led Judah in a revival. Second Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 3. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father, and the meaning here is his, uh, not his direct father, but his ancestor, just as his ancestor David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord, and he repaired them. Now, back then, the condition of the temple was a mirror of people's uh, hearts. If they let the temple fall into disrepair, it was a sign that God was not a priority in their life. But if they repaired the temple, if they restored the temple, if they cleansed the temple, as we see uh, Hezekiah doing here, it was a sign of revival because it showed that God was now their highest priority. Now we see the results of this revival. Number two, he led the people in worship. One of the first signs of revival is a greater intensity in worship. We are seeing this in the Asbury revival over the past couple of weeks. Uh, people are worshiping, they're praying, they're confessing sins, and people just don't want to leave. It, it, they just don't want to leave. They want to stay all night. They want to stay for hour after hour. 
And this is what we see going on in Israel, in Judah, under the leadership of Hezekiah. Second Chronicles 29, verse 27. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the musicians played and the trumpets uh, sounded. Uh, verse 30, so they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and they worshiped. Um, spontaneous worship, in, intense worship. This is what we see as a result of the revival under Hezekiah's leadership. Uh, number three, under Hezekiah's leadership, God gave them unity. Another result of revival is greater unity among God's people. It says in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 12, also in Judah, uh, the hand, uh, also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind, to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered following the word of the Lord. They were unified around God's purposes for their lives and for their community and for their nation. And then number four, Hezekiah had a ministry of encouragement. It says in verse 22, Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service uh, of, of the Lord. And then number five, under his leadership, the people were generous. Another sign of revival is great uh, generosity, spontaneous generosity. It says in 2 Chronicles 31, verse 5, as soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. The people of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks and a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God. And they piled them up in heaps. <laughs> it says in verse 8, when Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed his people Israel. Uh, down to verse uh, 20. It says, this is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In everything that he undertook, in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly and so, and so he prospered. And then number six, uh, here's another sign of, of, uh, of revival is conviction of sin and confession of sin and a recommitment to obedience. Uh, number six, Hezekiah got rid of anything that would compete with God for his love and loyalty. Uh, I saw, uh, heard about a book recently uh, called Cat and Dog Theology, rethinking our relationship with our master living passionately for the glory of God. It's written by Bob Sjordren and Gerald uh, Robeson. And uh, let me do a disclaimer right here um, before I get into this. 
I love both cats and dogs. I, I love both cats and I, and I love dogs as well. So I just want to make that clear before I give you the premise of this book. The premise of the book is that a dog says, you feed me, you love me, you care for me, you must be God. <laughs> so your dog says, look, you feed me every day, you, you love me, you take care of me, you must be God. Okay, that's a dog. A cat says, you feed me, you love me, you care for me, I must be God. <laughs> that's, that's what the cat says. You feed me, you love me, you care for me, I must be God. And there are two types of people. There are some that, like God, said, God, you feed me, you love me, you care for me. I'm grateful. My heart's overflows with gratitude. You must be God. But then there are so many people that uh, just uh, are blessed by God. God takes care of them. He protects them. And they begin to think, I must be God. And obviously, the dog is what we want to be there. Dog theology is we want. Out of gratitude, you must be God. Rather than thinking that we are God, taking for granted all the blessings that come from the hand of God. Here's another way to put it. A cat says, you exist to serve me. A dog says, I exist to serve you. And so uh, cat and dog theology is to change from thinking that God somehow exists to serve me and to take care of and to provide for my needs. Just kind of like a celestial Santa Claus that, that I ask him things and he gives me stuff. But no, like a dog, we say to God, I exist to serve you. By the way, dog is God spelled backwards. And here's just one that has nothing to do with this message. For you young parents, uh, diaper spelled backwards is repaid, R-E-P-A-I-D. So you young parents will be repaid by God someday for your sacrifice in changing those diapers. Uh, 2 Kings 18, verse 4. Here's, here's what it says about Hezekiah. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Uh, what are these high places? Well, many kings during a time of revival in Israel's life, um, they would destroy the idols, the, the outright idols, uh, alternatives to worshiping a god, worshiping false gods. Uh, and that was kind of going the first mile. Um, just the, the basics of a revival under other kings was to destroy idols. But they would always, often, almost always, leave the high places. Um, these were places where they still worshiped the one true God. They weren't idols, but they were more convenient than going to the temple. So uh, this is like us, uh, as you see throughout Scripture, it constantly says, oh, they, they get rid of the idols, but they leave the high places. Get rid of the idols, leave the high places. And sometimes you just want to shout as you're reading the Bible, would somebody get rid of those high places? Would somebody go the extra mile? 
And so many times we obey the big commands in Scripture, the big areas of obedience. We do those, but we leave the little areas of disobedient intact within our lives. These are the high places. But Hezekiah comes along, and he goes the extra mile. He goes the second mile. He doesn't just destroy the idols to the false gods. He destroys the high places. He not only stops the people from worshiping the wrong gods, but he also stops them by destroying the high places of serving the right God in the wrong way. He's going the extra mile. In our lives, the equivalent would be we, we worship when it's inconvenient. We don't just deal with the major areas of our life that we would kind of easily give up, but we go the extra mile. We say, God, I am also going to deal with those parts in Scripture that reflect on my life in, in the inconveniences. I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to say, God, I'm going to destroy the high places, the little pockets of disobedience, the places where uh, Scripture's hard to obey and culturally unpopular to obey. I will obey in those areas. I will destroy the high places like Hezekiah and not just the easy things, but the inconvenient things, the hard things, uh, areas to obey in as well. It goes on to say in the remainder of, of this verse that he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Uh, for up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Uh, we, we studied back in the book of Numbers how we called Jesus our bronze snake in, in the wilderness. And, and when they looked to the bronze snake, they were in faith, they, they were healed. And this was a picture of foreshadowing in 1400 BC of Jesus who was to come. And Jesus applies this to himself right before John 3.16. He says, for as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, um, so I will be lifted up on the cross. And then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But over time, they started worshiping not just what it symbolized, but they saved this as a museum piece, and they began to worship the symbol and not what it, it symbolized. And so Hezekiah came along and he saw this, and so he destroyed this um, symbol that had become a false god to them uh, as well as those other things. It says in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 1, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, after all that he had so faithfully done, you expect the next line to be, they lived happily ever after. But the next half of that verse is so jarring. It says, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Here he had been so faithful, and the result that happens is Sennacherib, Sennacherib, who was probably the most um, uh, wicked, uh, probably the most cruel man on the face of planet Earth at that time, he's who now comes. And you go, what's going on, God? I mean, this happens in our lives. You get revived. You get serious about God. You follow God like Hezekiah wholeheartedly. And that is when Satan 
attacks. When you're asleep, he doesn't care. You're not dangerous to him. But once you're revived, once you are awakened, now you are a dangerous enemy. And so many times it's when you get serious about God, when revival happens in your life, that's when Satan, that's when Sennacherib attacks. And number seven, Hezekiah stood up to the greatest power in the world at that time. 2 Kings 18, 19, the field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? And we can see that he works the same way Satan does to, to, to shake our confidence, to, to make us doubt ourselves and our relationship with God. But if you say we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in, in Jerusalem. They, he made them doubt what they had seen as obedience to possibly they'd done something wrong rather than something right. Um, furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and to destroy it. Satan whispers in our ear, you're being judged by God for your sin. Uh, you're, you're being attacked uh, because God hasn't forgiven your sin. That's why you're going through this hard time. And so he sows doubts uh, within our mind. Going on to verse 31, do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me. Satan says, compromise with me. Compromise with the culture around you. Compromise with Satan and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern. If you just compromise with Satan, everything will be easier in your life until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us? Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? This actually is a true statement, and Satan will sometimes mix truth in with error in order to confuse us. Well, in 2 Kings 19, verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the word Sennacherib is sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Now, before we see what happened, and uh, before we're at the end now of Black History Month, there are two quotes from Dr. King that I absolutely love and that are so appropriate for this moment 
uh, in Hezekiah's life and when we face trouble in our lives as well. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And then I so love this next quote. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil, triumphant. Right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil, triumphant. And here's what God does. Picking it up with verse 35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and he stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramalek and Sherezer killed him with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat and Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. And this event in history reported here in the Bible is confirmed in secular history, extra biblical, outside the Bible as well, that this is what happened to Sennacherib. A strong start for Solomon, but let's be warned by his weak finish. Uh, first of all, he did not accept the time of his death. Number, number one, he did not accept the timing of his death. Now, I, I want to be so careful here. It's not so much that he didn't accept the time of his death, but how he used that extra time that God gave him. God gave him an extra 15 years. And that wasn't the problem. It was how he used those additional 15 years. In 2 Kings 20, verses 1 through 7, God says, it's time for, for you to die. And he begged God for more time. And so God gave him another 15 years. Now, I want to be very careful here uh, to not over-spiritualize your pain. I know that the loss of extra time in your own life or in the life of a loved one is, is possibly been very, very hard. We lost my older sister, uh, Suzanne, uh, when she was 54 years old and Oh, how we would have loved another, another 15 years with her. Uh, we, we, we miss that time. And, and for so many of you, it's been way younger than that for somebody that you loved, or maybe for yourself as well. But we've got to remember that one moment in heaven is going to change our perspective. Isaiah writes in chapter 57, verses 1 and 2, the righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. So sometimes that's, that, that is, is part of God's plan, and compared to eternity, um, it, it is not a significant amount of time. Again, I want to be so careful because I know how heartbreaking the loss of extra time has been for so many. And it's not so much that Hezekiah didn't accept the time of his death, it's how he used or misused those extra 15 years that God gave him. Number two, he became prideful in his old age. 
It says in 2 Kings 20, verse 12. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Oh, how nice. How nice of him to do that. Now, Babylon back then, nobody hardly knew of them. They were a nothing power, far away and weak and small. And, and, and who, who even had heard of Babylon? It was all Assyria at that particular time in history. So Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine olive oil, his armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what do those men say and where do they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from some podunk nation far away called Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, in verse 19, there is a slight possibility that this is not as jerky as it's about to sound. It could be that he knew judgment was coming anyway and he was just relieved for his people, the nation of Judah, that it was gonna come later rather than sooner. But most likely we take it at face value and it is as it sounds. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime. He was thinking only about himself and peace and security during his lifetime and not thinking about setting up the next generation for success. Compare Hezekiah to Moses. Remember with Moses, the entire book of Deuteronomy was Moses uh, worrying about the success of the generation which was to follow. The whole book of Deuteronomy was Moses setting up the young next generation of Israelites for success in the promised land. And compare that to Hezekiah, who said, as long as it's good for me, that's just fine. Let's not worry about the next generation. Um, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that unlike uh, Hezekiah, we will think of the next generation that we will be more like Moses and not like Hezekiah and set up the next generation for success rather than only worrying about ourselves and not thinking about what comes next like Hezekiah does here. But Lord, overall from this message as we think about Hezekiah and the time of uh, revival during his reign, Lord, we pray that you will send us revival. Either day by day, uh, great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. Revive us day by day. Fill us with your Holy Spirit day by day. 
or Sunday by Sunday, uh, or Lord, if you choose to do a special work of God like you are doing at Asbury, like you did during the time of Hezekiah, or like you did in the 1970s in Southern California. Oh God, if you so choose, bring us a revival, like Hezekiah, like the Jesus movement, uh, like Asbury. Oh God, would you revive us again? And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, Amen and amen.